Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the LSE and welcome to this Shape the World event hosted by the European Institute. And welcome, too, to this uh, new building at the heart of our campus, a building whose completion we're in part here to celebrate. And the European Institute as one of the departments whose new home is here. Uh, there will be a drinks reception outside at the end of this event, and you are all welcome to attend that. And for those of you who like this sort of thing, our hashtag tonight is uh, hashtag part of LSE. I'm Simon Glendinning, and I have no reason to be here. Uh, <laughs> there is a reason why I'm standing here, um, but it's less clear that this reason has much reason behind it. I'm not a specialist in any of the fields of study represented here, nor on the questions that they'll be taking up tonight. I'm standing here because I am the head, the head of department. The head has been historically represented in Europe's history by a man, though it may now be a woman. Increasingly, it may now be a woman. Though perhaps in that case not always disturbing too much the old male's first order that it inherits. And it perhaps should go without saying, though still today it is worthy of note, that our panel composition today is an all-woman panel. It goes without saying that this remains untypical. And when I was young, it certainly went without saying when panels were composed only of men. Not so today. It will be pointedly noted that a panel is a manal. And we try to fail better in this regard these days. There is, however, a reason why we have sought to have an all-woman panel for this event a reason perhaps related to the history of reason itself, especially in Europe. When it comes to understanding what we are, whatever it is that we are, Europeans have drawn on a heritage of an anthropology, an understanding of ourselves that goes back uh, to the Greeks. We're the animal with the capacity for grasping what the Greeks called the Logos. In the Latin of the Roman Republic, Logos was translated as ratio, and we still understand ourselves today perhaps as the rational animal. Man is the animal capable of grasping the reasons for things, or of knowing the causes, or causas, of things. Rerum cognoscere causas, as it says over the doorway to this university. The university thought then as at the head of this heading of rational animal life. And we know that this heritage of European anthropology has been, and in its universities has been, a male's first tradition. 
At the head is a man, and indeed a white man. It has been so, and it remains so. However, in a mutation which is uneven, imperfect, and yet perhaps perfectible, this tradition and the universities at its head is today more and more opening itself opening itself up to a critique of its own reason. It more and more wants itself to be open to the voices and deliberations, the ratiocinations of women and of people of colour. And this is a good thing, even if, again, the old order is not always sufficiently disturbed by it. The university is, however, an exemplary place still in this regard, a place which has always been has always failed, failed best at being a place of deliberation on the reason of reason. Sometimes we can celebrate what takes place in this place. Well, last year in the department of which I am the head, we had more reason than usual to, to celebrate. Two members of the department, two women, were promoted to full professor in the school. Ezra Ozirek and Valtraud Shelte. I confess that when I heard the news, I was moved. I confess too, when I broke the news to each of them, I was astonished that they were mostly unmoved. <laughs> they took it in their stride. Quite right. Their promotion, their elevation was completely deserved. Nothing to see here, move on. Well, I remain a bit moved by it all, in fact. And to mark the event of their promotion, and to mark, too, the European Institute's move to this extraordinary new building, a new place to respect the call to respond to the causes of things, we've organised an all-woman panel to discuss, in public and in a public way, some of the often less-noticed effects of integration in Europe. Differential effects on this cap or cape or headland that we call Europe. Effects which perhaps too often go without mention but should not go without saying. That when Europe comes together, perhaps not all are given a lift up in the process, not all equally elevated in this new heading of this head. So not what did the Romans do for us, but what has European integration ever done for us? Our speakers tonight are here by right and with good reason, as good reasoners on the reasons or causes that have given rise to these variable effects and of variable realisations of integration on this cap. <coughs> and we'll be, they'll be speaking in order. First, Professor Ezra, Professor Ezra Ozirek, Professor in European Anthropology, and then our visitor, Rosella Pagliucci, uh, the UNHCR's representative to the UK, and then finally, Professor Valtraud Scheltle, Professor in Political Economy at the European Inst Institute. I would like you now to welcome them with me. Ezra.
you so much, Simon, for this um, nice introduction. So I'm here not only as a woman, but as a non-European talking about Europe. And thank you so much for including me into the conversation of um, talking about Europe. So we had this question, what has European integration done for us? And I've thought about it and thought about it, and I felt like I don't know the right answer. So I did what I have always done as a question. Um, when I receive a question, I don't know the answer as a student, is that I try to take each word one by one and talk about it. So you can try that method. It has gotten me far in my career. <laughs> so first, we'll be talking about what is Europe, which Europe. You know, so is, are we talking about Europe as geography or Europe as an idea? So um, Europe is, you know, other than Asia, the only continent which doesn't have a demarcation. We don't know where Europe ends and where it starts, especially, you know, towards the east. Um, but what is even more important is that as an idea, we don't know where Europe starts and as it ends. The, uh, the ideas about it have changed a lot. And I can easily count a half a dozen countries who for decades and decades have been discussing if they are Europeans or not. And while looking for a map on the internet, I found out that Kazakhstan is also curious if they belong to Europe or not. I said, oh, Kazakhstan, join to the club. I didn't know that you are part of this discussion. Okay, um, so how about Europe as an institution? As do we know what it is? You know that all these people came together, they've thought about it, thought about it to define Europe, and we are left even more confused, right? So if I counted correctly, Eurozone has 17 states. Of those, 15 are in the Schengen area. 12 other states are also in the Schengen area, but are not in the Eurozone. Of these, five states are not even part of the EU, Switzerland, Iceland, Norway, Monaco, and Liechtenstein. Two members of the EU are neither in the European Eurozone, <laughs> are neither in the Eurozone nor in the Schengen area, that are Bulgaria and Romania. Um, and as always, the status of several states in relation to the EU is under negotiation. Now Britain, Kosovo, Serbia, and Turkey. So even a very formal definition of the EU does not help us understand where the EU starts or where Europe starts or ends. So having said that, Europe was the easiest of the three words to think <laughs> through. So the next comes integration. Um, the word, yeah, this is much more complicated and uttered in the European context. And I would argue that Europe is the continent where this word is uttered the most times. I cannot think about any single other country where everything is about integration. And I sometimes think um, you must have heard that the Inuit example with the snow, that they have so many different kinds of snow that they have dozens of words for what we call snow. So I would imagine if integration is so central, or if every time we say integration, we mean different things, we should have had different names for it, but we don't. So for a whole variety of things, we have just this one word. Um, 
Okay, so this really, I was thinking, how can I understand it? What it is that um, this is happening exactly? Um, I am from Turkey, and it really made me think about the word modernization, and also the word contemporaneization is used in Turkey. The Turkish government now gave up that goal, but say, you know, from um, beginning of the um, 20th century until recently, this has been an official goal. But especially I really like the contemporaneization. So you could not be contemporary, but you would have to work towards it. But we also at the same time knew that this is something you could never achieve. It was like this asymptote. You could only get closer to, but you would always lag behind. So I have a strong sense that integration is also something like that in the European context. It is something that you always can get closer to, but you can never achieve. If it was, we would hear more concepts like Europe is a well-integrated continent. Right? It's always um, like this process version of it um, is being used. Um, Okay, so let us look at how the European Union officials define the word integration. They, it is formally defined as the process of industrial, political, legal, economic, social, and cultural integration of states wholly or partially in Europe or nearby. You know, to me, this is also a very important um, um, concept that I think um, totally dropped off the map in the last um, 10 years. So there is an agreement that this idea came out of the devastation brought by the two world wars. And it is true that the European integration or the making of the European Union made it possible that peace prevailed um, in the European context. Of course, if we exclude the Bosnian genocide, you know, which is a major um, thing. But another perspective to the European integration to see it as an alternative to declining European empires. So European integration made it possible to unite at least the trading potential and also lawful transition from colonial relations to post-colonial relations. So if we look at integration from this perspective, we can see that even though European integration made sure that wars have not been fought in Europe, right, bombs have not been falling, um, but uh, we cannot think about a lot of the wars, especially in the Middle East, where I know better, um, to think independent of this um, Europe's colonial legacies. And also, again, another important factor is that through the decades, usually both sides of these fighting parties have been supported by arms sales produced in Europe. <coughs> and the, um, capital accumulated through these arms sales have been supporting the European welfare systems and also the European integration process. So even though you know, the, it has been a relatively peaceful continent, but it is not that it fully achieved um, peace you know, in the world or at least in the nearby as it is one of the um, uh, original goals. Okay, so that brings me to the final word in the um, uh, question, which is the us, and I think uh, uh, my co-panelists will also speak about it, but let me just bring it briefly. 
So I couldn't answer exactly what European integration has achieved, but I know that it has not done a good job well enough to create a feeling of us that encapsulates East and West Europeans, South and North Europeans, um, countries that are in the European Union and others that surround it, older and newer residents, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and Roma, white and people of color. Some groups, it turns out, feel more us than others. And it looks like the gap between the us and not us in Europe, and also in Europe and with its close surrounding, um, is increasing by the way, uh, by, by every day. So my final question is, is there another kind of European integration? Thank you. Thank you, Ezra. And uh, we're now going to have our non-LSE representative, Rosella Pagliucci. Thank you. You, you, can, can, I, uh, you can stay where you are. Or you can, I think it's nice to go up there, but you can... I can, stay, go, you I can, can go up there. I was thinking about <laughs> remaining comfortable sitting, but... <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't have PowerPoints, so it may be good or not. It depends. Well... I also was struggled a little bit with the title and even more so with the subtitle of the of this session. And uh, having, since, my, since my school days are too far away to remember the little trick of questioning the question when you don't have an answer, um, I decided I would use my generous allocation of seven minutes to talk uh, uh, a little bit about both uh, inter-European integration in matters of asylum and on integration of refugees within Europe. So, first of all, by, by way of setting, uh, of setting a bit the, the, the general picture, uh, the number of asylum applications in Europe, uh, by which I mean EU plus uh, Norway and Switzerland, has decreased significantly after the 2015-16 peak, which saw an influx of about 1.3 million people coming to our shores. The final figure for 2019 are not yet public, but they will probably be around 600,000 per, 600, persons, which is more or less what we have been having on a fairly regular basis uh, since 2014. Most of them will be in Germany, France, Spain, and Greece. Now, this decrease uh, in Europe must be seen against the increase in forced displacement worldwide. Forced displacement worldwide is now over 70 million people, of which about two-thirds remain within their own countries, and the remaining about 25, 26 million become refugees. But, and this is very important, mostly remain within their own region, so in the global south. The, uh, this, I think, is a very important thing to say and to repeat, because we need to really remind the public uh, of, this, of this very basic data to counteract a bit the scare tactics that uh, uh, have been used to search. Can I put this oh, on sorry. So, yeah. So, to a bit counteract the scare tactics that have been put to such, such successful use uh, in many countries. Now, fear is a terrible basis for policy formulation. And I think it's also important that a broader perspective on these issues allows us to recognize that A, Europe can make it. 
Europe does have the resources to deal with this issue. And <laughs> okay, this is starting to become any, uh, any more microphones. And, uh, um, I'll tell you what, there's one, one on the lectern which was working brilliantly a minute ago. It seems to be off. I should take that perhaps as a sign. <laughs> okay, so back now with two microphones. Um, so it's uh, first of all to remind everybody. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, to remind ourselves that uh, this is not really uh, this is a very manageable issue for a for a continent such as Europe, but also to remind ourselves that we must share the burden of those countries that, because of their geographical location, end up really shouldering most of the burden. Of, uh, uh, of the world is place. Now, the 2015-2016 peak also brought, uh, brought into, into light the divisions within Europe. I'm sure you will remember that the reaction of, uh, uh, of various European countries to the arrivals was very, very different. Uh, you had Germany who basically welcomed close to a million people and some other countries that instead started building fences. Now, finding a way to bridge this divide within Europe and to create what is a truly common European asylum system has been, uh, has been a very, uh, has, been, has remained a priority in the agenda of the, of the Commission and of many, of, many, uh, of many of us. But despite that, it hasn't really gone very far. There is a 2016 proposal that hasn't yet managed to achieve the, sufficient, the necessary consensus. So what is preventing the European from uh, Europe from achieving the integrated response that, frankly, seems almost commonsensical for a continent that has, uh, it's a block that has a largely eliminated intern internal um, borders and has significant resources at its disposal. And I think one of the, one of maybe of the critical point uh, perhaps speaks to what we have heard, and it's a, perhaps a different view of, a difference of views about what constitutes uh, really the European values. We, people's opinion of course uh, change, partly because of experiences and partly because of course these days there's a barrage of targeted information and disinformation. And while a majority of Europeans, I believe, still believe in inclusion and in the humanitarian imperative, there is a significant number that perhaps don't or do not believe so much in it. The asylum and immigration agenda has become incredibly politicized and has unfortunately then fed in many countries an extreme nationalist agenda. So as a consequence, efforts to create a harmonized system uh, so far have, been, uh, have not been really successful. Uh, what we need is a predictable reallocation mechanism for those who enter the borders of the Union and a com common asylum st standards. But to this date, the differences remain uh, quite significant, uh, not to say enormous in some cases. And as to predictability when it comes to the, the allocation of arrivals, I think we have seen uh, you know, with, the, with, the, with the ships arriving to Italy or with the, with the question of what to do with the, how to relieve Greece of at least part of the burden is shouldering. It hasn't really worked very well at all. Um, so 
I think we can, ask, we can say safely that when it comes to asylum, there is very little intra-European solidarity. And, uh, uh, and I, we have seen countries refusing to accept even one asylum seeker. Now, I was saying that a strong asylum system with sensible minimum standards is critical to refugee integration. Because uh, what we're seeing now, for example, uh, there's a situation in which uh, Arriving as an asylum seeker in Greece these days, uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure you've seen it on the news, uh, is, uh, uh, it means it's really a, fair, a very extreme case of poor reception conditions for so many people. And uh, uh, when it comes, for example, to, um, say, recognition rates, in 2018, Afghans, the, the protect, grant of protection to, to asylum seekers from Afghanistan ranged between 6 and 98%, depending on where you were seeking asylum. So there is really a vast disparity. And that vast disparity, naturally, is further compounded by the fact, and this, of course, has nothing to do with the, with the common asylum system, that, of course, countries themselves are very different. Some countries are very multicultural and quite open in, 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 in nature, and, uh, and they have perhaps also strong, uh, strong employment opportunities. Others may be more, more monocultural, in some cases with a fairly high rate of xenophobia, and, uh, in other, and maybe with, uh, with fewer opportunities for, for integration. So all these, uh, all these aspects uh, contribute to the impression that asylum seekers have a certain country, so they wish to move uh, or to try to move to one or the other. In fact, uh, however, the most, uh, the most fundamental factor in this decision is the presence of family links or a successful diaspora. And it makes sense, of course. I mean, if you have to leave, if you have to drop everything and run, would you rather go to a place where you, have, uh, where you think there would be somebody to help you integrate or go to, to where you don't know anyone? Would you rather go to a place where perhaps you speak the language or to some countries that is entirely alien to you? And of course, we have a system in the European Union that is meant to balance a bit, to correct uh, the assumption that as I, all, all asylum applications have to be presented in the first country through which somebody enters the European Union. It's the Dublin regulation, you probably have heard about it. It contains some, correction, some correctives, so you know, family links, cultural links, other links may be considered in deciding which state is responsible for, the, uh, for the deciding on applications for asylum. Uh, this, of course, uh, uh, means but length, the procedure is complicated, is lengthy, is sometimes, uh, let's say, not adhered to too strictly because I think some states see it more as a way to avoid receiving asylum seekers back. And that, in turn, means that many people eventually move, uh, move on their own from country to country, what we call secondary movements. That can result, of course, in further uh, waste of time, so to speak, and the risk, of course, of ending up in a situation of illegality. Now, this is it. I'm saying this because uh, all of this is really important when you're looking at the second part of my discussion, which is uh, integration of refugees in their country of asylum. 
there's plenty of studies that show that integration prospects are strongly influenced, by, among other things, by the time frame within which this takes place. Isolation, long procedures, delays in accessing language and skills training, long periods out of work are usually good predictors of relatively poorer outcomes in the years to come. And you have to consider that many of those who arrive in Europe have already spent months or years on the way, perhaps trying to survive in some intermediate country before actually eventually being pushed, often by desperation, towards Europe. So refugees already start with far greater challenges, which almost invariably place them at disadvantage relative to regular immigrants and refugees, and nationals, sorry. Unlike immigrants, they are unprepared often for what lies ahead. They may not have the, the right educational qualifications. They may not speak the language. They didn't have time to prepare. They, have, they may have also sometimes mental issues as a consequence of the often grueling experiences that they've been then going through. They suffer from the separation from their families, the loss of what they had. So it is a, it's a fact, and there, is, there are interesting studies, by, among, among others, by the Queen Mary University that uh, refugees tend to have uh, far greater challenges than immigrants and, of course, nationals. It takes them longer to, uh, to integrate. But then, of course, uh, if, we, if on top of that we also add inefficient procedures, long periods waiting for a result, for a, for a response to a claim, inability to access uh, language, uh, language training, inability to access employment, then I think you're really compounding the, the situation. And you are really creating a problem that, apart from being a problem for the individuals themselves, it's also a problem for the communities. Yet, a little bit earlier, we were kind of joking about the fact that sometimes, and not just here, it, there are people who sort of think of refugees and asylum seekers as scroungers, people who come to sort of, you know, sort of milk the country. But let me tell you, the vast majority of refugees that we have met want nothing more than support themselves and their family. They want to work, but they can't until they've been recognized. And even afterwards, they find it very difficult to get into, into employment, and particularly to get into employment in their own areas. So there are a number of added obstacles to integration, which mean that people cannot contribute to the community as much and as well as they would like to. I mean, a doctor who ends up packing stuff in, at Amazon is an incredible waste for the community and for his own family. And we, need to, and we need, therefore, to seriously work on having intelligent integration programs. They're good for the refugees, they're good for us, they're good for the communities. They're good for the public purse. People don't want to, to be on the dole. People want to support themselves and their families. So really being humane and sensitive is actually also a good common sense business proposition. I don't know whether this one works. Does it work? No, it doesn't. It doesn't work. But I need to do it anyway. Good evening, everybody. Um, I'm really pleased to see that how many of you were attracted by this question. And while I had expected that I know practically all faces in the room, I know some, 
but not all. Uh, and that's a nice thing too. It's a, a diverse uh, audience and that's how it should be. <clears throat> I will do what I always tell my students not to do, namely focus just on one word in the question, um, uh, the, the us. Ezra had taken this as us is the Europeans. And she actually meant the members of, uh, so citizens of the European Union. I'll take it more personally because I would never expect that the Europeans would expect the same. Uh, I take it at a personal level, I'm a German, uh, and I do think European integration has done a lot for Germany. Um, it has given it a second chance as a, as a nation to come back in a post-national community of civilized democratic nations. Everybody knows that, and I think nobody has more to be grateful for that than, than Germany. That is something that is still also um, informing our relationship to the European Union. Certain things are taboo. You cannot question European integration. I feel that was until recently always for me uh, a, a reason to say in Britain there is a much more uh, grown-up discussion about European Union. You had within the established parties, uh, so to speak, a, 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 a critical discussion and opposition to European integration, I have to say the last three years uh, have proved me a bit wrong on this. I did not expect that something can flip from a very open and critical but also sympathetic discussion into something that I think was extremely distorted. Um, what is so, and that brings me to my second us, not only am I a German and have a personal reason uh, why I think Europe has, European integration has done something for that us. Um, one of the surprising things is this, that it brought two arch enemies together that then became the driver of the whole project, France and Germany. And it's not despite, to this very day, these two countries tend to disagree on every next step of integration. And because of that, they become the driver of it. If they can somehow work out something that, that is agreeable, most countries, until recently, and again, the Euro area crisis was not such a good example for it, but most countries can find themselves between them. That is an enormous achievement, that you can resolve your deep divisions. And from the state tradition to the outlook on almost every policy question, two countries that are far apart. But the one thing that we want to have a kind of post-national community that was created to rescue the nation state, that this is enough to say we overcome this with uh, peaceful means. And this achievement is one, I think, of which many nation states cannot claim that they have helped deep divisions with they, have, they may have within their country, be it religious, be it some minorities that oppose each other. Not many can, uh, nation state can claim that they have overcome that forever. While I would think in the European Union so far, you would not think that France and Germany uh, go against each other anymore in the way they did in the 20th century. And so I come to the second, what I, how I understood us. And I speak here from, my, from what more or less preoccupies me 
12 hours a day, and that is that I think about political economy, not only of European integration, but a lot about political economy. And for that, it's, you know, it wasn't created for us academics to have a good time and interesting things to study, but it has done this. Uh, it is the ultimate experimental polity. In the simple way, as I always explain uh, students in the beginning, why are you here? What do you study when you study the political economy of Europe? The extraordinary experiment that you want to achieve a political end, peace and prosperity in Europe in the wider sense, with almost purely economic means. And at the, in the back of that, you have a lot of political integration and, and, and cooperation in order to achieve this economic uh, integration. This is for many people a problem because they say this is turning the whole project on its head, this focus on the economic means, and yet I believe that it is actually the reason why it is done in a relatively peaceful way. Economic means have the advantage compared to this uh, thinking about values, as much as I believe that is really important, and at least the elites need to share that value. But for most people, in the end, it has to have tangible, fathomable advantages. And economic means can all, always mean you can actually make compromises, you can pay off somebody, you can compensate those who may lose from the process, and that's something we practice internally in our member states with the welfare state, and that I see at work with the European Union as a whole. What is so uh, um, experimental about it, first of all, that it has not destroyed the nation state, and uh, while I, as a German, I have a very ambivalent relationship to the nation state, but at the same time I have to say, <coughs> Uh, and have come more and more to think when I look at the United States today and actually 20 years ago when I spent some time there, there can be polities that are too big to be democracies in a proper way. Um, and I do think democratizing the European Union today would be a step too far. You cannot have at that level a democracy as I would, would understand it, where one at least in a in some way feels one has a participatory right and has an influence of what happens in the capital. It is an experimental union. If you look at the 500 years of, of European states, there is porous borders. There is no military to defend this border. There is no internal police force to uh, say, you know, we, 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 we kind of channel all these, these movements across we have freedom of movement, we enlarge all the time, and that is something, before we had the European Union, that would not be seen as something that's possible for nation states. Nation states had, had conquered the territory and then had defended uh, that place, and that made them actually quite uh, conflict prone. The loyalty of its citizens has to be earned, it cannot be enforced. That's why we're all very critical of the EU, and I think quite right too, as grown-ups, and the EU should live with that. It imposes a lot of burden on the member states to justify some of their measures, some of their protections they want to keep, and so it should prove daily that it does something for its citizens. The voice in the traditional sense parliament, through parliaments, through political representation, is weak at the EU level. 
but at the same time it has empowered individuals in a way that at least some scholars like Fritz Scharf find now quite problematic, uh, for example, to get our rights vis-a-vis uh, -vis a European Court of Justice or being represented even by other member states if we are in a country outside of the EU through uh, uh, diplomatic uh, uh, personnel. Uh, the central powers, since my last point, come in plural, and to me that is a reassuring thing. It has a lot of powers, from supremacy of law to direct effect of EU law to a court that, that has been experimental and creative. But at the same time, there is not one central force that forces all of us. And so to me, this is part of a post-national, post-authoritarian state formation without itself being a state. And that you are here is to me a reassuring thing. We should not give up to say it has to do something for us. And as far as I'm concerned, I can say it has in my life done something for me and I will be a sympathetic critic to it so that this stays that way. Well, thank you all very much. There's an incredibly interesting uh, sequence there. Uh, one of the things that struck me um, listening to Valtraub there was uh, thinking about this experiment, this extraordinary social, political, international experiment of uh, Europe wanting to become one. And that at the heart of this was an ancient rivalry between uh, France and Germany. It, it's a matter of fact, I, I, I hope there isn't any, anybody in here who heard it, but I gave a lecture on this this week. It's a, a very um, central theme for European thinkers thinking about Europe, is, is picking up on a kind of themselves bearing witness to uh, this experiment, of, of seeing it on its way already, even before it really began to happen in the, after the war in the 20th century. In, in, the, in the 1880s, uh, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche uh, talked about it precisely as an experimental synthesis of Europe wanting to become one. And he represents this Europe uh, through these rivalries. And in fact, he has three central figures in the narrative of a synthesis of uh, European spirits, and, and they're very classical. I mean, it's uh, the three, basically, that they are always there, which is Germany, France, and England, what he calls England. And uh, the English there play this mediating role, in a way, of uh, trying to keep some kind of practical handle on the development of a process which has a tendency because of these exalted spirits who are inside it from kind of flying apart and so on. And I know it has been mentioned a few times since uh, uh, Brexit events sort of began to unfold that Britain leaving the European Union does mean that that Franco-German rivalry uh, doesn't have that triangulation with Britain, which, which could be difficult. I hope it's not difficult. And it probably won't be because um, uh, Britain won't stop talking, probably. <laughs> um, but that idea of uh, an experiment of becoming one, of course, uh, is something that Ezra picked up on when she said that the, <coughs> the language of development here is precisely one of process, of um, integration, not being integrated, of 
harmonization we could talk about, democratization you also talked about. And this, this uh, belongs absolutely centrally with what is in fact the, one of the mottos of the European Union where they talk about ever closer union, ever closer union, it's this movement picture and also an asymptotic one as you describe it, it's ever closer, it's not, it's as it were the, the not yet attained which has always got to be as it were the, the status quo, you've got to always not yet have attained it and I wonder if uh, not attaining it is in a way one of its strengths, one of the things you're talking about there. If, if you attained a certain, for example, statehood, that could, for, for in, a, in a supranational way, that could be a problem. If you attained a, a kind of level of democratization or integration or harmonization uh, 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 across Europe, that, that might be a certain kind of death of Europe, an end of, of Europe, just through its own kind of fulfillment, which would be odd, that non-fulfillment perhaps belongs to this trajectory. On the other hand, I did worry when I, well, not worry, I, I mean, uh, Rosella was uh, enlightening us on, on that there's a, a, something of a paradox, though, at the, at the heart of this development without end, which is that uh, the, the movement which is about saying we are all European, all part of one Europe, uh, has to have some kind of tension with something that belongs to your uh, body's mission, which is humanitarian. And a humanitarian ideal where we are all one humanity, where we are all part of one world. And th those two developments, the humanitarian, which hasn't been entirely separate from anything, everything European. I mean, it's, the humanitarian ideal is, is itself perhaps... Uh, uh, has been expressed often, if, if, if not first, I've no idea, but it was expressed often in, in Europe. So the two aren't um, contradictory, but they're sort of... In, they, the, the, the desire for Europe to become one and the ex, Europe, European experiment and the humanitarian desire for a world to become one or a, for uh, humanity to express itself as one uh, sometimes seem to be in tension. And so, yes, this uh, question that you left us with about there's the integration that Valtraud and uh, Ezra talked about within Europe, but then there's this integration of refugees, which is in the way in which it expresses its ethos in terms of its uh, welcome or not of the stranger, of the arrival, of the one in need, and so on. Uh, Ethos uh, comes from the Greek for, for uh, home, uh, and the ethos of the home, as it were, that's a sort of tautology, uh, but the ethos of the home is not only expressed in how we deal with each other in the home, but also in how we deal with the ones who arrive at our door. And uh, Europeans' history in relation to the newcomer and the outsider is not always so uh, magnificent. Actually, our relation to each other has been mostly at war, so there you go. Anyway, we have some time uh, for questions. <coughs> and uh, uh, I hope there are microphones around. <laughs> I'm so sorry with the microphones earlier. We wanted UNHCR be heard. Yeah, we wanted the UNHCR <laughs> to be heard. Uh, but we have microphones now, and so if, if when I pick you out, if you could uh, wait for the microphone to arrive uh, uh, before you pose your question. 
and we have one there. Yeah. Thanks. And then one there. Hi. Um, just wanted to talk about the different policies in Europe. So they're not very consistent over all countries. For example, Austria doesn't need an ID check to go to another country. But if you think about Paris and London, you need to get through the French border and the England border before going. So I was thinking, shall we need to get more inclusive policies or should we need something more lenient? Rosella, do you? I didn't quite understand, I didn't quite understand the, word, the, the question at the end. Sorry, there's very different policies across countries. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, sure we need something, a European Union that has very consistent uh, rules, or should it be more one country needs to do something and some, someone else is doing something else? Uh, well, if I understand what, what you're asking, it's really uh, a question of, uh, of course, uh, all, all, all members of the European Union have their own country, have their own borders. But the reality is that in order to function as a block, and a block that has an a common external borders and not internal borders, except of course for the ones who have opted out of the Schengen Agreement, you do need to have a consistent approach. Otherwise, what you what you're going to see is a, is a sort of a, is a sort of a human pinball, of people being pushed out of a border trying to sneak into another border. I mean, the European Union wanted to have, uh, aspires to be, to act as a, as a one, as a kind of a, 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 let's say, sort of coming closer and closer in reality to, a, to one federal state, even though that's not often sort of expressed in that way, with an increasing number of common processes, common institutions, and compatible uh, structures and this hasn't really come to uh, it, it we were moving in that direction but uh, then there has been a bit we, we, we come apart and I think it's uh, and I, I do believe that the European the European project cannot function without a fundamental agreement on certain critical or critical values and critical processes okay thank you very much uh, the next one is at the back there, yeah. Thank, yeah, thank you. Thank you for the presentation. Uh, um, from my perspective, the, the Brexit is about the, is a, is about the failure of British to be able to find a post-imperial role and identity. I mean, to be more specific, um, Britain has been uh, historically unable to come to the term with, with its own decline. I mean, especially after the World War II. So my question is, um, I mean, after Brexit, how will British deal with this identity dilemma? Thank you. <laughs> Can I say one thing on that before I hand over? Uh, I did a, a, a read-through of all the speeches of um, British Prime Ministers speaking about Europe uh, in Europe from 1945 to uh, the present day. And it wasn't until 1997 that a British Prime Minister didn't speak about the empire. And the, the, the first time was uh, Prime Minister Tony Blair in uh, speaking to the European Parliament where he did bring it up. He talked about these old empires that European countries, especially his own, were part of. But he said, 
this belongs to our past, right? Very interesting. It was a real attempt at that time to break out of that uh, imperial narrative, imperial self-understanding, which had been absolutely solid to that point. Every single prime minister, speak, Thatcher particularly, I mean, Thatcher made a, Bruges spe a speech in Bruges which was incredibly pro-European, I mean, absolutely committed to our belonging to the European community as it was then. But she also literally celebrated uh, European empires and British empires as giving civilization to the world. It was so primitive, as it were, in its, or uh, open in its um, imperial self-understanding. And so I, I, for one, think you're certainly right to say uh, it, the trajectory of the UK out of Europe belongs to the continuation of that still imperial, post-imperial self-understanding. But it's not... Uh, it's not, as it were, the only story inside uh, Britain's history after, after, after decolonisation. And there have been, there are other, actually, you know, very high-level narratives which would take us in a different direction. For the moment, we're not there, though. I would say just one thing to this. Um, while you may be right that it has to do with lost empire, we were not the primus inter pares in the European Union uh, for parts of the Tory party. I think it would be too easy to just say this is a post, you know, diminished giant syndrome that we observe. I think the, the traditional Labour voters in the North don't suffer from the, the really small uh, chip on their shoulder or whatever. Uh, they, it's something else, and I think Britain could learn something from the European Union. If you just look in the, in the uh, negotiations so far, we saw a unity among very different nation states. In fact, it's something we, I, I research at the moment. How can it be that, that um, 27 of the 28 were so united, and within Britain, you know, you had at least in Parliament the, the, the sign that the representation of the split nation led to, to complete paralysis. So learning a bit from the European Union may come handy in the next few years when, you know, this country is running into a constitutional crisis. And it's not so much about the empire, but about internal disintegration because it has a bit about England against the rest. Wales, perhaps, and the dovetails. Good. Okay, thank Anybody else on this one? I just wanted to say um, this imperial nostalgia is also a thing of the moment, and it is not only here, right? You know, we see Russia has it intensely, Turkey has it intensely, and they're all having it at a moment where they don't have anything like they used to. You know, so maybe seeing it as a global phenomena can also help us understand it better. Good, thank you. Lots of hands. So one at the back there, and then we'll come to the front. And then you. Um, I would like to ask about the contradictions within the EU. I'm, uh, I feel European. I'm British, but I feel European. I want the EU project to succeed, but I fear it is doomed. There are so many contradictions within the EU. It's decided it was going to expand before it had really consolidated itself. It really set up so many contradictions 
with the creation of the Eurozone, it set out requirements that only countries that met certain criteria could join the Euro, and yet it didn't follow those through. It couldn't because it's a toothless tiger. And now it's continuing to talk about expanding before it's really learnt how to just walk. It wants to run. It doesn't, can't even walk properly. Austria, Hungary, um, Czech Republic, all have very racist anti-immigration policies. And Greece has been made to carry a huge burden that's totally unfair. Germany did wonderful things, but what was the point of Germany creating the problems that now German, German people resent what Merkel did? If all the other European countries had been forced to take those immigrants, then that wouldn't have happened. I feel it's actually decided it's a doomed project. Um, there's so many bad things that are happening in the EU, and yet it is such a wonderful, idealistic concept. Well, thank you so much. And I, I have to say that uh, Valtraud has actually written a book about this. So, <laughs> Well, <laughs> about all the contradictions you talked about. No, I leave some to my colleagues because you also talked about uh, refugee policy and so on and so forth. Um, let me just, just say that the creation of the European uh, Monetary Union seems to be the craziest project uh, ever uh, done by the EU. Um, and it's clearly everybody says its diversity is the problem. South can't live with the North. And this I would really reject. If you look, why is it that even during the crisis, small countries joined that, that monetary union uh, when they saw this is actually a moving target. And you're quite right. It is always a moving target. It never stops. You, you, you pick that up from, from all our... Um, there is no finalité in that sense. But I'm saying this in a union of democracies, I would expect such contradictions. And the diversity can be made into a strength if you harness it and if you say just like we do with our insurance schemes, that more diverse, diversity can be to your advantage, but you have to also build the safety nets. Now, we had quite a few, and among them was, funnily enough, the euro with its cross-border payment system that, for example, just to give you this one economic example, a sudden stop of capital flows never actually reached trade finance because the banks that didn't trust each other anymore could upload the risks to the central bank system. This is one of the things where I say, you need to do research on seeing how the whole thing actually held together, even though it was an existential crisis. And these things are not always planned. They come out of the complexity of institutions uh, that have then kind of abilities and capacities to, to share risks, for example, that you hadn't uh, seen before. What I do think is a problem that we think more integration is always better integration. The problem with the euro area crisis was not that we didn't enforce the fiscal rules. A small country like, like uh, uh, Greece could not have rocked the boat if not our financial system had been in that weak position. And that we have to have back something like segmentation of markets when the spillover between them is too much to, to stop. That is something I think the EU should start thinking about 
that sometimes segmentation and not integration is the best thing to do. Thank you. Uh, anybody else? Well, you know, with respect to the, uh, to the asylum seekers and what happened in 1516, I think, uh, uh, indeed, it has shown really the, the limitations for the time being, at least, of the system, particularly to deal with issues that are so of such a magnitude. Uh, the reality is that, as things stand, uh, the, European, the European Commission is not in a position to impose a solution on states, and of course many decisions have be, uh, must be taken at the unanimity, and therefore there will always be some states who have a different take uh, who will block them. So I don't see this being uh, sort of solved unless there is uh, either uh, either a coming together and a different understanding, which I don't think is, is in the offing for the time being, or, or uh, having a different system that allows uh, for decisions to be taken at European level. Yes, sir. I don't have anything. No? All these contradictions. Okay. Yeah, then we were here now, I think. Um, I really agree that the, um, uh, the uh, economic benefits are really key to getting people on side. Um, but I think by the nature of um, prosperity, people don't always know where it comes from. When people get their pay slip, it doesn't say 20% uh, of this is down to the EU. And I think this feels like even after five years of debate, the public doesn't really know what even now what the EU did potentially for the British economy and I think it's it's been a bit of a failure of articulation um, and I'd just be interested to, to have some meat on the bones of that tonight really um, um, what can we say um, I think maybe it made it more open to um, competition and they're more productive but what can we say about that because it's I think even now it's not fully understood by a lot of people yeah, it's, it's a, let, let, we will take another question mm -hmm. before going on with that. that. That's a good question. Yeah, there and then at the front. So we'll take three here. But you go. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Agnes. I would like to address a few issues which were raised by the gentleman and previously. Uh, last, last year, in November, we celebrated a 30th anniversary of uh, collapse of the Berlin Wall. It's a, it is a significant uh, date. I had opportunity to attend uh, another lecture at LSE organized last year on this occasion. And uh, it was mentioned, uh, the lady concentrated about the problems within Germany itself, 30 years after the collapse of the Berlin Wall. And she mentioned that Germans still, Eastern Germany still experienced to some degree problems because the full integration did not happen. She provided examples like headquarters of the big corporation. They don't open that, the headquarters uh, in the East Germany and many, many other problems. I ask her a question whether she agrees with my vision that West Germany did not recognize the post-traumatic stress disorder among the Eastern Germans and the same West, Western Europe did not recognize or couldn't address the post-traumatic stress disorder of Central and Eastern European countries. Integration is not only economy. There are still people living in Central and Eastern European countries which remember communists and what they had to go through this. And I think this is quite often omitted somehow 
forgotten. And when we see about issues with asylum seekers and accepting or not accepting, this is a clear division. People, uh, countries from with experience with post-traumatic stress disorder, they didn't want to accept this because they very well remember. And I think they didn't have enough time to fully recover after this. They are happy, but I think they still remember what does it mean to lose or not to lose a freedom. Decide or not decide. Someone else decide for them. So I think we have to also remember about this issue when we talk about integration or not integration issues, because this is another layer which is added to the problems which we are currently experiencing within EU. Excellent. Thank you. Super question. Thank you very much. And now we'll uh, take a third in this, uh, down here at the front, please. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, a short question. What, what interpretation should one put on the um, goings-on in Catalonia, in Spain, um, in the context of European integration? Thank you. Excellent. Okay, well, I would, uh, we've got a question on um, the effects of, the, of Brexit on the UK economy and what did the EU actually do for us in that respect. Post-traumatic stress disorder of former Soviet bloc countries uh, and also um, East, Germany. East Germany and then Catalonia. Well, I don't know if we'll have anybody on that here, but we'll see. But um, you would say something about the trauma of... Uh, I, I must confess that I'm more used to thinking of trauma in terms of individuals rather than countries, and I wouldn't dare... I had, I'd never heard about that, to be honest, and I'm not sure I have a clear, uh, clear in my mind what that might say, might mean. I would just like to simply, however, note that most of these countries were actually quite welcoming to refugees and to outsiders immediately after the change of regime. Uh, the, there's been a, 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 an evolution or an involution, depending on which way you look at it, after when there has been a far greater shift towards uh, nationalistic or sometimes extreme nationalistic views. Uh, but the, the, the interface actually immediately after, the, after the, 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 the change was actually quite positive. And of course many of these countries have themselves, uh, and many of the people that are currently in, uh, in positions of authority, etc., were themselves refugees. They left, they left uh, in 56 in the case of Hungary or in 68, etc. So it's a kind of experience that some of them have lived from the other side. Thank you. Uh, and uh, what has the EU done for the UK economy? Yes, I, I would like, like if, if Ezra is, is okay with that, because she's actually quite an expert on, on Germany and has extremely interesting perspectives on, like, for example, German women becoming Muslim things that we never think about and how she sees, she has lived a lot in, in uh, some time in Germany, so that would be something int that interests me to hear from you. The economic benefits for the UK, it, it is really true and all these uh, attempts to show will the euro create 0.5 or 1.5 more GDP over time, uh, I think are pretty pointless because you never have the counterfactual, the, the rest of the world also moves on. But I do think one will notice that life chances simply are 
choices are curtailed. That starts with the young in this country. Now, not so many young Brits have actually tried it. It's also for the Europeans, of course, who would like to benefit and come to this country, and I think the country has benefited from that. I would say that, wouldn't I? But um, <laughs> I was actually not so young anymore. But I do think it, it has been proven by some that actually the, the British welfare state is one that extremely benefits from uh, from from uh, immigrants because you have you have the one universal benefit that's the NHS that attracts a lot of because they care more about having an accident or getting ill than anything else. They're not scroungers as you said earlier. So that benefit you won't have this turnover of ideas, people coming here, the creative industries and so on. Small firms that had that bigger market with which they could you know, get easy access and then uh, simply things, why in this country there was not more pressure for higher wages has partly to do with that our living costs have hardly risen in real terms, or at least those things that people care, the rents and, and, and housing costs have risen, but food is extremely cheap and that will change a lot. We will, the waiting times, the transaction costs of trade will mean that we all become impoverished in that respect. Thank you. If I can yeah. just yeah. Uh, add something. I mean, I'm a scholar of the Muslim minority in Germany, so I did not work on East Germany, but I have read a lot, and then I worked with some East Germans, um, especially the ones who convert to Islam. Um, so my sense is that the reason behind unhappiness and dissatisfaction is not a trauma of communism that they couldn't overcome, but rather that the reunification didn't work exactly as they have imagined, that the terms of it have not been equal. Probably it is the, the trauma is more of that. So how I see in Germany is that um, you know, on the ladder there is the West Germans on top, there is East Germans here, and then there is Muslims here. So it is that West Germans are leading the way, that they achieved, you know, they have done the necessary work to come to terms with um, the Holocaust, they denazified, they democratized, but East Germans have not done that, right? That is the narrative, you know, there are different interpretations of it. And, and at the end, there are the Muslims. Oh, they have not done it at all. You know, so it is this inequality, and then um, it, I think that is what is behind the um, emotions, I would say. And on Catalonia, one, one thing <laughs> worth thinking about there is that um, historically when people talk about markers of cultural identity, the two great markers are language and uh, religion. And uh, Catalonia does not have a different religion from the rest of Spain, or historically hasn't uh, had a different religion, but it does have its own language, and that will be one of the, as it were, one of the forces at work that can make possible uh, an independence movement of the kind that we can see there. Very interesting to consider the parallel case in the United Kingdom, which is becoming increasingly uh, real today, is the question of uh, Scottish independence. And Scotland uh, also has its own language, but it's not, as it, as it were, expressed through its national politics. Uh, but um, if you wanted to see a predictor of uh, how people voted in the last Scottish referendum for in independence, 
um, religion or so the, the legacies of religion were the, were the, were the best predictors. So uh, the um, Catholics voted uh, for independence and the um, Protestant parts of uh, Scotland voted for union. Um, that, that actually, that uh, proportion remains relatively stable. But it's very interesting then to think of Catalonia wanting to get out of one union and into another, and Scotland very much the same, would perhaps want to get out of one union and into another. And it's very interesting then to think about uh, what, are, what are the things that one doesn't like about a union that aren't a, an objection to union <laughs> as such, you know, that, that they still want to get into this other one. Um, and it's a, an, perhaps... Uh, a legacy of such a long union that makes the relationship between France, uh, between Scotland and England so difficult, um, and the domination of the union by one power, one principal power by, uh, by England. Whether uh, Catalonia leaves Spain and joins the European Union, and whether Scotland leaves the United Kingdom and joins the uh, European Union. Of course, we, we don't know. At, at the moment, uh, neither are wholly likely, actually, or, or the most likely. The most likely thing is that neither of those things will happen. Um, but it's absolutely right to think that uh, for Britain, leaving the European Union has made the question of Scottish independence alive in a new way. Uh, whether putting politicians in prison will make the issue alive in Catalonia in a new way, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Okay, more. Yes. Uh, let's take the three across the middle there, then the mic can just be passed along. So from starting there. I go back to the words, uh, because words has a meaning, of course. Uh, and I would like to know if you agree in exchanging integration with a learning process. And the second question is, uh, do you think the EU learn from crisis and how? Because tonight we mentioned two very strong crises. Uh, well, asylum and economic crisis, and I'm uh, eager to know your opinion about learning and the EU. Thanks. Thank you so much. Hello, um, my name is George. Thank you for this great talk. Uh, my question relates to the notion of uh, European identity. I think we can agree that the Common European Project has managed to uh, sort of establish the concept. But where do you see it developing in the future, and do you think that it might eventually outweigh the relevance of respective national identities? Thank you. Thanks very much. I would like to ask a question to Ms. Pellucular. Uh, given the recent trends of more restrict, towards more restrictive measures, do you think that a more harmonized common European asylum system would actually imply greater protection and rights for refugees in Europe, or would it lead instead to a sort of race to the bottom situation? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, just one, one thing to preface it, at the uh, point about the learning. What was the word you used? Learning process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
the people who first projected European Union in the 1700s saw it as belonging to a learning process. In fact, they thought of it as moral progress, but it did mean a learning process where you move from a condition in which if we were all the nations of the European Union, we move from a condition in which we're primarily in relations of antagonism, mutual misunderstanding and war, and move towards mutual understanding, peace and respect. And that was genuinely thought as a learning process. And so uh, that idea of the learning process belongs to the idea of uh, limited sovereignty being a cause of peace, as it were, or union, the movement towards political union itself being a, a pacifying process, but also, yes, uh, one in which we learn to understand each other better. And so I think learning process already belongs in there, but we can see uh, other, other thoughts. Yeah, I'll talk about this integration. Probably you meant... Um more European states integrating, but what is striking to me is how different is the weight of the word when it is used in relation to European states integrating versus immigrants integrating, right? You know, the learning process sounds okay, totally. Um, but when we talk about immigrants, this learning process is as if something that can never be com um, completed and that can never be achieved. Um, so if we are going to think about different words, now, you know, disgraced um, European Muslim intellectual who made really bad choices in his private life, Tariq Ramadan, which, who nevertheless had really good things um, to say about the role of Islam in um, Europe, had recommended that don't talk about it in terms of integration, but talk about it in terms of contribution. You know, if any individual is contributing to the society that they're living in, that is enough and that is something to be celebrated. You know, this other totally undefined category of integration, sometimes it is being used as a way to penalize and discipline immigrants rather than going somewhere that is already known. Um, yeah, so maybe thinking about it in, in different words might be helpful. Thank you, Ezra. Who would like to take something else up? Uh, okay, I can just sort of add to the fact that, for example, when we talk about refugee integration, we do not intend that refugees should, should relinquish their cultural heritage or anything, but simply become more of a part of a society mm -hmm. and uh, being equal, equal contributors, so not, not uh, a question of losing their identity and, and, assume, and assuming completely the, one of the, major, the identity of the majority. Uh, on whether harmonization within the, the European context can achieve better protection results. Well, it depends <laughs> on what harmonization, obviously. And this has been, of course, a long-standing issue in which we have been constantly discussing also uh, in Brussels and with the various member states because of course what we want is not harmonization to the lowest common denominator but harmonization ideally at a higher at a higher level uh, what obviously the range is so different uh, that uh, any kind of harmonization is likely to be an improvement for some of the ones who for one reason or the other find themselves at the lower end, end of the spectrum I think overall uh, we do believe that harmonization does make sense. And particularly in areas where lack of harmonization is really resulting in real hardship 
for the refugees, uh, and a real hardship also for the for the states themselves, uh, who find themselves maybe overburdened uh, with uh, asylum seekers that they can't properly they can't properly manage. So, I think that there is a lot to be said for uh, for harmonisation, at uh, of course at a sensible level. Thank you. So I take up two questions. The one, uh, does you learn from crisis? <coughs> I think it does, but it's not a linear process. And there's, you know, not one person that learns, obviously. Um, it has, for example, shifted totally from governments, com the EU and the monetary union is all about government's commitment to good policies. And these good policies were defined in no uncertain terms, certain fiscal rules and all that stuff. Uh, towards risk sharing, uh, safety nets, things like that. To me, that is progress, but I do not believe that this is forever. One will have for, always to fight for these interpretations, what it means, what then is embodied in institutions. We also learn, and we have seen it in, the, in that financial crisis before the euro area crisis, yes, our elite bureaucracies actually do learn the, that practically no saver except then in, in, in Cyprus, has lost money in such a systemic bank failure as we have seen, is something I would have never expected because they knew how to keep the system going. I mean, they keep it perhaps too much going still. Uh, but, you know, that means something that you had not seen in the Great Depression. The problem is always we learn how to fight the last crisis and the next one hits us somewhere where we haven't looked. So... <laughs> It is, however, for me a reason why you should have diversity in such thing. And one thing I fear with the banking union is that we have too much homogenous thinking because the chances with diversity that you see things because you're not all looking in the same direction. European identity, uh, Simon has just given it to me as a, would I, do I stay a German as I do? I do, but... I'm a kind of negative patriot, as I noticed from lots of my uh, uh, colleagues and, and, and students. In a way, I'm ashamed when my country does something, my home country, that I do not like. I don't feel terribly proud, but I have thought about whether I should take British citizenship because I live here since 20 years, uh, and I will probably end my working life here, I hope so at least. And there is then a question, would it not be more practical? But at the, at the time when this country has become little England, I didn't want to join it because that is another decision to join rather than you're born into a nationality of which I, I have no deep uh, feeling about it. I think I do feel as a European, but again, I'm glad that it doesn't require a deep identity and, and, and singing and flags and stuff like that. It's nice to have it as a security and, and one is privileged if one lives on this continent. I think i add, add to that uh, two, two quick things. One is um, I, do, I do think that uh, the self-understanding of a European nation um, develops in the context of membership of the European Union. And I have no doubt at all that uh, what it meant to be British and English uh, underwent some kind of mutations in the period of membership of the EEC, European Community and the EU. Uh, what I might think of as a kind of Europeanization 
but not becoming European. You stay British or German or whatever you are, uh, but as it were, you're Europeanized in that dimension. And uh, for, in, for Britain, I have to say, in my own perception of that was that it was almost exclusively good, that development. I mean, that really, in a way, comes back to the question <laughs> earlier on about uh, a, a development for Britain away from an imperial self-understanding towards being a member state of the European Union. I mean, that's a glacial movement that, that would take place, but nevertheless it was happening, and also happened in sort of uh, many, many other ways of, uh, that I think were strengthenings of what it meant to be British, but in this new way. And um, I think it, it could be a, the worst disaster, I think, for uh, my country is in a way what you're saying here, that whether, whether we whether there's a financial disaster, I think it's going to be a more, much more likely a disaster without disaster. And the disaster, insofar as there is one, will be about this uh, uh, retreat from a process of self-development for a, a country uh, in this new European context. But the point to make there, though, is that you don't stop being British. I mean, uh, let's stop talking about Britain because we're not in it. Uh, you don't stop being Italian or French or German or Croatian or whatever it is in virtue of being a member state of the European Union. Um, however, the, as it were, the nativism, the atavism, the old fatherlandishness of those identities which had belonged to the nation states of Europe, the old nation states of Europe, in a uh, time before uh, integration, <laughs> no, but before... Uh, this Europeanization uh, uh, movement um, is something that I think is overcome. So, no, you don't lose your national identity, but you may, the intensity of the uh, feelings, as it were, of uh, uh, where if it, it can take weeks and months to overcome. Uh, some kind of feeling of welling of pride or sadness or wh whichever it is. Um, th these don't take so long and uh, you have a transformed way to be uh, in relation to yourself that is a part partly a function of this belonging to something greater. So no, you don't stop being British or not British but German or French or whoever. We've probably got Oh, goodness. We've got time for you. <laughs> because you insisted. <laughs> we'll have to wait for the mic. Better be a good question. Yeah, better be a good question. <laughs> All hangs on no you. <laughs> I feel a little bit like a fish out of water here. Um, <clears throat> the title of the, uh, the talk is What Has European Integration Ever Done For Us? I'm not a Brexiteer because I believe in facts and I believe in experts. I am, however, against groupthink. Um, the title, of course, refers to the famous Monty Python Life of Brian sketch yeah. in which a, a rubble rouser from one of the Ju Judean liberation fronts tries to uh, uh, goad people against the Romans and a long list of achievements and uh, betterments of the quality of life then follows. Um, so I was hoping, rather naively, for a similar list of takeaways from this evening. Um, but listening to the panel, I haven't heard very much economics. There's been an awful lot, of, with the exception of uh, 
Uh, uh, so I don't know how to pronounce your first name. But, uh, 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 we, we've had a little bit about the banking system. But there's been an awful lot of sociology and an awful lot of uh, diversity and um, uh, stuff which I, I don't consider to be uh, pure economics. I, I was hoping to get some kind of insights into, for example, how frictionless trade has evolved uh, during the, the time we were in Europe. So we now have a, a fantastic range of goods available uh, with short supply chains. And I was hoping to find out you know, how much supply chain lengths have shrunk during our, the period of European membership. Those kind of things. I, I would have liked a, a, few, a few more charts and tables and graphs <laughs> and technical questions. Okay. Um, you're, so you're actually my question, in short, is what do the panel consider to be the takeaways? What has European integration ever done for us? Because I don't think more refugees is necessarily a okay. positive takeaway. And that's why we lost. Got it. But the thing is that this panel was going to discuss the things where it had not given us a benefit. That was the point. So uh, perhaps that's partly why you didn't get that. Um, that's a really difficult question then to end on, but perhaps it wouldn't be a bad idea to turn it round just to finish with. Um, what has European integration ever done for us? A positive thing. What would you say, yeah. Ezra? <laughs> Sorry, I guess I'm um, ever negative, but from my perspective, everyone's embracing their national identities today. Uh, I, you know, I am um, of Turkish citizen, uh, was born and grew up there. You know, Turkey has never been part of the European Union, but in the early 2000s, it was, you know, a, a fleeting possibility. And that really did a lot for Turkey that lots of, you know, the capital punishment was abolished, you know, it became possible to speak Kurdish in public, lots of important democratic developments happened, and it was happening both to be wanting to be part of the European Union, and at the same time, lots of um, money was coming from the European Union to work with the grassroots organizations who can deepen the understanding of um, democracy. And that really led to a new generation of really creative, interesting um, 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 ideas, a, a new kind of youth, I think it helped flourish. Um, but then as the government walked away from that idea, and it you know, quickly turned authoritarian, um, the, you know, that group tried to resist but of all the many tens of thousands of people who are in jail right now are exactly those people who were working on that idea. You know, so the quick um, turning away from that idea and also I guess maybe many people, maybe me too, we had imagined that the European Union would have a more of a force, that they had supported those ideas so much. You know, they really thought you know, these ideas are worth supporting. So how is it that they will no longer support it? How is it that they will so quickly give in to the refugee deal and then, you know, let the government, even like the, the exact journalists or the civil society organizations who were working for them be in jail right now, right? So these are... Um, Ezra. Okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. 
you know, maybe the takeaway is that when the values of it fail, the economic part, to me, yeah, is not where the strength is. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Rosella? Well, the, uh, the EU, I think you heard, I heard you saying, I'm not sure that bringing refugees to Europe is a good thing, uh, but the EU doesn't bring refugees to Europe. The EU uh, aspires, it has to some extent, obviously we have concentrated on what doesn't work well, but I think it has established system, established standards that help states manage the refugees who are coming anyway. It has also established mechanisms to provide funding for activities to, uh, to either improve uh, procedures or to apply, you know, to, to integrate refugees. So that there are things that have been done by the European Union to help states manage asylum. I can see a very unconvinced face, but... Thank you. <laughs> I'll try the last word. I mean, you could read all up these numbers from our economists and it would do a much better job than I do. These figures have been disputed and so on. I do think in the end it is a political end to which European integration works. And I said it is a post-authoritarian community of national democracies that are better democracies for being in the European Union. Uh, and that is something worth having given especially our European history. Indeed. Shall we end there? Thank you very much to Valtraud, Rosella and Ezra.